Section 16 of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12 The Conquest of England, 1052 to 1066, Part 1. On the death of Godwin, Harold had succeeded to his earldom of the West Saxons and become the leading man in England. Godwin had been a man of ready speech and policy but Harold was a man of action. With wider sympathies and knowledge than his father, he showed a more conciliatory spirit toward the remnant of the Norman party, while he maintained the true line of English policy. In the years that followed, the power of Harold steadily increased. In 1055, Siward, Earl of Northumbria, died, and Northumbria was granted to Tostig, Harold's brother, whereby the influence of his house was temporarily extended to the north, while Gurth, another brother, ruled in East Anglia. In the same year a dangerous competitor for the throne was removed by death. Edward the Atheling, son of Edmund Ironsides, had been recalled from Hungary by the Witan, the call being looked upon apparently as equivalent to a recognition of his claim to the succession, but hardly had he gained the shores of England when he died. His death, lamented by the English chroniclers as a national loss, is by calumny laid by them to the door of Harold, as that of the Atheling Alfred had been attributed to Godwin. No doubt Harold was the chief gainer by his death, but this alone cannot be considered sufficient to establish his guilt, and Harold certainly was never accused of it during his life. By the death of Edward the Atheling, Harold's power was still further increased. Edgar the Atheling and Margaret, his sister, now alone remained of the hereditary line. Of these, one was a woman, and no instance had yet occurred of a queen sitting on the English throne. The other was too young to rule, and if we may judge from his subsequent career, too weak to lead a party. From this date, therefore, Harold assumed a semi-royal position. In 1062 we find him engaging in a Welsh war and subduing the independent princes there, a campaign which added to the prestige of his name and left him without dispute the greatest man in England. Two years afterwards, in 1064, according to the most probable account, Harold, driven by stress of weather on the coast of Ponthieu, was seized by its count. No sooner did William hear of this than he demanded and obtained his release, and then, as the price of his assistance, extorted an oath from Harold soon to be used against him. Harold, it is said, became his man, promised to marry William's daughter Adela, to place Dover at once in William's hands, and support his claim to the English throne on Edward's death. By a stratagem of William's, the oath was unwittingly taken on holy relics hidden by the duke under the table on which Harold laid his hands to swear, whereby, according to the notions of those days, the oath was rendered more binding. Then, after aiding William to subdue Conan of Brittany, who had thrown off his allegiance to the duke, he returned to England. Two years more, in 1066, Edward the Confessor died. Since the return of Godwin and the overthrow of the Norman party, he had let things go as they would, 
and as death drew on, he neglected more and more the affairs of state. Wrapped up in deeds of devotion and in the foundation of his Abbey of Westminster, he gave his kingdom hardly a thought, and passed away with an uncertain recommendation of Harold to the Witan, and with the gloomy prophecy on his lips which rang the death knell of his race. Because those who are of most account in this kingdom, earls, bishops, abbots, are not what they seem to be, but are servants of the devil, God has given this land, accursed of him, into the hand of the enemy within a year and a day. The Witan met. No mention was made of Edward's promise to William or of Harold's oath. Voices were raised for Edgar the Atheling, even for Duke William. But the national feeling was too strong to accept the latter, and Edgar was as yet a stripling and unfit to rule the kingdom at such a crisis. If the royal line was not to succeed, who better fitted for the post than the man whom Edward had recommended with his last breath, the man who for the last ten years had been king all but in name? Harold was elected king. The families of Seward and Lefric did not oppose the choice. The opposition of Edwin and Morcar, grandsons of Lefric, who now held Northumbria, being perhaps bought off by the marriage of their sister Edith to Harold. Thus, by 1066, the house of Godwin was seated on the English throne. By this act, the Witan reasserted their undoubted right to elect the king, and rejected at once the promise of Edward and the oath of Harold. No instance had yet occurred, indeed, of their thus selecting a man not of princely birth, but in the case of Canute, they had established their right to depart from the royal line, and in choosing Harold they best consulted England's interests, and chose the man in whom the best hope for the country lay. Hardly, however, was Harold on the throne than he was called to support his claim by arms. His brother Tostig had been deprived of Northumbria for his cruelty and oppression, and banished the realm in 1065. He now took the opportunity to avenge his wrongs, and with the sanction of William ravaged the coast of England. Then, forgetting his alliance with William, he turned to Harald Hardrada, king of Norway, with whom he agreed to divide the realm of England in 1066. Thus then this knight-errant of the eleventh century, who had seen Constantinople, the Holy Land, and the southern shores of Italy, and who once a landless wanderer had now secured the kingdom of Norway, hoped to regain the crown of England, once held by Canute. He came, the saga tells us, bringing with him a mighty ingot, so large that twelve strong youths could scarcely bear it, part of the treasure collected in his southern expeditions, a treasure which was to pass as the reward of victory first to the English herald and then to William the Bastard. The invasion of Hardrada apparently had no connection with that of William. It was carried out without his sanction, perhaps without his knowledge. And had it been successful, Hardrada would certainly have resisted the claims of the Norman duke. As it turned out, however, by calling off Harold's attention from the south at this moment, it materially contributed to William's ultimate success. The invasion was a formidable one. 
the Isles of Shetland, Orkney, and Iceland, then owing nominal allegiance to Norway, sent their contingent as well as the Danish settlers in Ireland. Even Malcolm of Scotland, who owed his crown to English help, influenced by his marriage with the Princess of Orkney, lent his aid. Hardrada, having first touched at the Orkneys and Shetlands to collect his forces, sailed south past the mouth of the Tyne, thence to Scarborough and to the Humber, ravaging as he went. Then, advancing up the Humber, he landed at Recall near York. In vain the earls Edwin and Morcar attempted to defend their earldom, they were defeated, and even York opened its gates. But the triumph of Hardrada was short-lived. Harold, hearing of the danger, at once marched north and, meeting his foes at Stamford Bridge, won a decisive victory. Tostig and Hardrada both fell, and the offer of Harold, when treating before the battle to give the king of Norway seven feet of earth or a little more, as he was taller than other men, was literally fulfilled. From the victorious battlefield of Stamford Bridge, Harold was recalled by the news that William had already landed on the shores of Wessex to dispute his claim. William was hunting in the forest of Rouen when he heard the news of Harold's election. He at once affected the most unfeigned astonishment, denounced Harold as a perjured man, and drawing up a specious claim, appealed to Christendom. In this appeal, the wily diplomacy of William and his two chief friends, Lanfranc and William Fitzosborne, is strongly illustrated. He declared himself to be hereditary heir in his own right and that of his wife, and thus appealed to the idea of hereditary succession then growing in Europe. The religious feelings of the day were enlisted by his assumption of the position of an injured man punishing the false perjured herald. The Normans, he reminded, of the ill-feeling which had existed since his father's attempted invasion, and the insults they had to avenge, the murder of the athling Alfred when supported by Norman arms, the outrage inflicted on Eustace of Boulogne by the rude citizens of Dover, the subsequent deposition of a Norman archbishop, Robert of Jumiege, and the expulsion of the Normans by the proud upstart family of Godwin. To the Pope, Alexander II, and his great minister Hildebrand. He speaks, probably at the suggestion of Langfranc, of his invasion as a great missionary work, which shall purify the corrupted Anglo-Saxon state and church, and bring England more closely under the sway of Rome. Thus, having united the suffrages of Europe, he rapidly gathered an army, and appealed to the ordeal of battle in vindication of his claims. While then we deny absolutely that William had any claim to the throne of England, we must at least acknowledge the skill by which he gathered up the threads, gave to his unjust claim the character of justice, and overcame the opposition of the Norman nobles, many of whom were unwilling to join in the enterprise. We cannot but admire the masterly statesmanship by which, in the face of an ever-watchful overlord at Paris, he was enabled to gain the alliance, passive or active, of nearly all the powers of northern Europe, and prevented the Capetian king from allying himself with Harold or making a diversion by an attack on Normandy. 
the army and transports were collected at the mouth of the Dives. Thence sailing to Saint-Valéry on the coast of Pontieux, William waited until the south wind should blow, meanwhile spurring the religious enthusiasm of his army by frequent religious rites. At last the long-wished-for wind arose, and leaving Normandy to the care of his wife Matilda, he sailed for Pevensey. The landing was effected without any opposition. Harold was still in the north and had failed to keep an army together in the south. As William stepped upon the shore, he slipped and fell. The cry of the men, an evil omen this, was answered by William's ready wit. By the splendor of God, said William, holding up a handful of earth in his closed fist, I have taken season of my kingdom. The earth of England is in my hands. Then ordering his ships to be beached and dismasted that all idea of retreat might be prevented, he marched forwards to Hastings. End of section 16